This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from the beautiful hill country of Texas. And um, I want to be quick in this introduction. This is an important show. And we have a great guest, and um, I think this is the most important show we have ever done. I have COVID pneumonia. I don't feel great, but this show had to be done, and I wanted to get it done quickly. Our guest today is, we're going to use the name John. That's not his John. It's anonymous. He's a retired, uh, former, he's a former intelligence officer, served for 10 years in Iraq, several years in Afghanistan. He is fluent in the languages of the region and multiple dialects. Not only does he have a, a PhD in Arabic, but he's lived in the region for over 20 years. He has served our country and he served the people of Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, he's very knowledgeable on the ground and also from 30,000 feet uh, as an academic and as somebody who... Um, has a broad base of experience in the region over a long period of time. But not only that, he has been wounded seriously in Afghanistan. His blood is... Uh, when we were together in Iraq, we call him John. When I was with Iraq, when I was in, in Iraq with John, an Iraqi official said to me that your, your buddy is Iraqi because there's two, two ways to be Iraqi. Either our sand is in your blood or your blood is in our sand, and his blood has been in our sand. He was wounded in Iraq. He was wounded in Afghanistan. He was wounded... In another country, so and and these were not minor wounds. Um, so he is uh, an American, but he has put his life on the line not only for us but also for for the people of Afghanistan, in Iraq. I wanted to talk to him to get a broad overview of Afghanistan. How did we get to this point of this great catastrophe, which I believe is is one of the lowest points in the history of our nation, if not the lowest point. How did we get here? I asked him just three questions. I think these are the three questions that are the most, to me, that were the most important questions that needed to be answered. And the show's about 90 minutes. I ask that you listen to the show. I know when you're done listening to the show, you're going to want to share it with everyone you know, especially uh, influencers. Share it with members of Congress. Uh, share it with your pastors. Share it with your friends. Share it with veterans. And um, I want to make sure this, this show gets um, a large audience because when you turn on the news, you're not getting a lot of information. You're getting sound bites run over and over and over again. And there are narratives that we can now begin to see that are being pushed through the media as they begin to influence us. We address what are some of the different influence campaigns that are being um, generated to form public opinion on this catastrophe? How are we going to see this catastrophe in a month? How are they trying to form our opinions? So I just want to get straight onto the interview with our guest, quote, John. This episode is being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the vulnerable. We are not your traditional human rights organization. We are very serious in our commitment to defend the vulnerable from violence. Go to our, or our website, thegreatcampaign.org, become a monthly supporter this episode is also being brought to you by Mike Lindell's My Pillow, and he has a special on Giza Dream Sheets. I'm not going to go into this uh, commercial too deeply for this show because the show is that important. Just 
you know Mike Lindell supports good causes. He supports this show. He has a great product. Go to MyPillow.com. Use the code Jones. When you click the radio listener square, and you will get uh, deep discounts on everything. And there's a special on Giza Dream Sheets this month. All right? A lot of us are confused about what's going on in Afghanistan. A lot of us, all of us, I hope, are very angry. Well, this show, I promise you, when you are done with this 90 minutes, you are going to have a clarity on the issue of Afghanistan that um, would have taken you years of, of discipline study to really come to the, this understanding of what's happening. So here we go with former intelligence officer John on Afghanistan on the Jason Jones Show. Aloha, John. Welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Hi, Jason. Good to be here. So, hey, brother. First of all, when you were on, John's not your real name because the nature of your work. Um, when you were on and we did the, uh, the Iraq special, I received notes from members of Congress, people in the hierarchy of the Catholic church, a lot of influential folks that said that was the best synopsis of Iraq that they, they have ever heard. So I'm grateful to have you on, um, to talk about Afghanistan. I'm going to have three simple questions, uh, for you that I think all Americans are wanting answers for. The answers aren't simple. I know, but there'll be just three questions. But before we get there, can you give us, um, a little, a little bit about your your work in Afghanistan and your knowledge of the country. Sure, sure. So, uh, first of all, uh, my expertise in Iraq and uh, and the the Arab world um, is is considerably greater than Afghanistan. I don't consider myself to be an Afghan expert. Um, I I spent nearly ten years in Iraq. I did deploy uh, to Afghanistan with the U.S. government and and worked between there and Pakistan for several years. Um, my last trip to Afghanistan was in 2018. Um, so I, I, I would say that I'm not an expert, although um, I had um, significant experience on the ground. There are a lot of experts on the mainstream media that have been to Afghanistan once or maybe never or read Wikipedia about Afghanistan that present themselves as experts. So I, yeah. I think it's quite humble of you to share that experience and say, I'm not an expert. So um, I would think compared to most folks we're hearing from, you're, you're an expert on the region. Um, can you tell us what you did while you were there? Can you talk about that at all? Um, uh, I, um, it was a, uh, a mission for the Department of Defense, um, and the, the the nature of the mission um, allowed me to work uh, throughout the country. So um, I had a lot of different uh, locations that I set up, which really um, which really gave me a good good perspective um, on the country writ large, which is difficult for Afghanistan. Um, my experience uh, when I first went there was that Afghanistan didn't seem to be one country. It was like five countries. Um, the east was so different from the north, which was so different from the west, which was so different from the south. And, I mean, you have a country that's, that's split with, a, with the world's second largest mountain range, the Hindu Kush, plus deserts and, and, and whatnot. So... Um, it's, it's a country where you, you, you really don't have 
the connectivity between like states that you do in the United States. And I think that influenced the mission overall because when I would visit one section of Afghanistan, for example, like Herat, Western Afghanistan, um, where the, um, the Italians were uh, responsible for, um, it, it was like a completely, a totally different operation than, than Mazar Sharif, the North that the Germans were responsible for. So, and the, my, my impressions of Afghanistan, strategic impressions, um, going in and, and I was lucky enough, um, to, to take, um, about seven months, uh, to just, just learn the place and move all around the country and, 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 um, try to take in as much as possible. But my, my strategic observations on, on the mission at, at the time, and, and this would have been, um, starting more than 10 years ago was that, um, it, it was, it was, it was an ad hoc mission. Um, it was very disorganized, um, even compared to Iraq. In Iraq, there was um, um, one you know, command and control mechanism, the U.S. Department of Defense. Um, I think it was extremely organized while the U.S. US forces were there, whereas Afghanistan was, um, was, was uh, a NATO show and um, extremely disorganized. Coming from Iraq, it, it struck me as, as that, and and um, no one was no one was on the same page, um, and um, it was it was a mess. It was it was an overall mess from the very and, be- from, uh, the very be- from the very beginning. From my experience, from my experience, yeah, my anecdotal experience. I mean, I can speak historically as to why why it was a mess from the very beginning. I mean, we can go president by president. Um, if that's useful. Yeah, I want to do that. So my, let me, I'll share with you my three questions, which are, 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 are they're going to be, um, the, f- the first question is just the American people have reacted spontaneously and passionately to the fall of Afghanistan, uh, which has been significantly less tragic so far than what happened with the rise of ISIS in Iraq uh, when it comes to right. loss of life. Um, and so my first question, and you're the one person in the world, I think, that's best in a position to answer this because you, you served in both places. So my first question is, will be, you know, why did, why are Americans reacting differently to Afghanistan in a way that they didn't respond to Iraq? Well, that'll be the first question. Why are veterans so much more committed um, to getting their partners out of Afghanistan than I saw, at least in the media, uh, than Iraq? The second question will simply be, that Biden owns this, this is his catastrophe, but there have been uh, catastrophes from the very beginning leading up to this epic tragedy. Uh, Maybe if we could do some of those landmarks. And then the third question will simply be, people are confused. I'm seeing journalists tweet, so-called area experts tweet. Uh, We're confused. And maybe just if you, what would you want us to know? It's just citizens uh, that I think all of us share a responsibility for um, broken promises. What should we know, and and um, what is sort of our path to, um, you know, f- how do we serve the people of Afghanistan going forward? So those would be the three questions. But the yeah. first question is, um, I have been taken aback and grateful to see the response of the American people, even coming from the left, from the left to the right, 
um, a passionate concern for the people of Afghanistan. You and I went to Iraq together. We worked hard trying to drum up concern for the people of Iraq, and it just seemed like an impossible task. Pope Francis himself never once mentioned the genocide of Christians in Iraq. Um, and even I didn't see the, the outpouring of support for our partners in, in Iraq the way I'm seeing veterans. Um, just today I was working with a, a Marine commander. Uh, you know, I talked about this, trying to get his friend out, and he did. By the grace of God, he got his, his interpreter out. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's, so it seems different. What, how well, do you explain I, the difference I, I, in responses? Okay, so there, there, there are a lot of questions there um, unfold. Um, first off, I think the Iraq war um, was poisoned politically. Um, it became a political football in Washington, and it, it ended up being condemned as, as the bad war, the unnecessary war, and Afghanistan was the good war. And um, so um, Iraq always had a, a, a nasty taint to it. Um, uh, and um, it was, you know, a war you, you know, you didn't, didn't talk about in, in polite company. Um, I mean, people, people couldn't, couldn't look at Iraq um, post-invasion and post the, the eruption of the insurgency and say, okay, we're there. We need to do our best. Uh, we need to support our, 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 our soldiers, Marines, airmen, et cetera, and, um, and, you know, put politics aside. We could never do that on Iraq. And um, so I think that's one thing, whereas Afghanistan was perceived to be the good war and the war of necessity. And I think a lot of that, that came in again in 2011. Um, and it was very cynical maneuverings by, by um, political, by foreign policy gadflies um, who wanted to ingratiate themselves with the Obama administration. And the Obama administration really, I think, uh, campaigned on that, that, you know, we took our eyes off the ball and, and that Afghanistan is where we really need to be. And, and, but I think his actions showed that, that he, he himself was cynical about what, you know, his, his true commitment to that in terms of, okay, there's an, there's a, there's another, um, tactical issue or just a, a very nuts and bolts issue, um, that differentiates, um, Iraq and Afghanistan, and, and that's Iraq's. A, um, I would say it, it was a considerably uh, a, a much more dangerous place to operate. So um, Iraq is not was not a place um, where the, the the press and NGOs could operate freely. Iraq's a very difficult place still um, to operate safely. Um, Whereas Afghanistan, um, until recently, um, especially Kabul, um, was a much safer place. So that was it was a place where NGOs could go. I mean, there was a five-star Italian restaurant in Kabul. Um, same thing, a five-star Lebanese restaurant, an incredible bar, and nightclub. And I mean, uh, unfortunately, this is one of one of the things that horrified me about about Afghanistan, you had a, a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of NGOs and even, even, uh, 
civilian um, uh, civilian officials going into Afghanistan, and and it, it was like play. It was like um, they were playing Dungeons and Dragons. They were in fantasy land. You know, they would they would put on their version of Afghan clothing, and and um, and it, it was an adventure. Uh, it was an adventure for them with with little or no risk. And um, these people were extras, and and they were Bruce Lee, and it was a kung fu. Yeah, movie, yeah. And they got to go. I mean, there the Afghans were the, Af- the the Afghans were extras, absolutely. And I can say for all um, large numbers of of the civilian bureaucracies who were there, um, I mean, they like they they frankly, I mean, they they partied incredibly, and um, this included, you know, many. NGO workers and and whatnot. So there 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 was no seriousness about it, and they congregated largely in, in Kabul, and there was real fighting going on. And 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 DoD, you know, was suffering suffering terrible casualties, especially from um, from the the Obama administration with with the the uh, two surges in in, in troops. That's when we suffered the, our, our largest casualties in the, in the war. Um, and, and Afghan security forces and Afghan civilians um, um, were fighting a very, very real, vicious war. Um, but meanwhile, in Kabul, you had this la-la land. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of these people, especially in the civilian bureaucracy, were your decision makers or inf- were advisors to decision makers who were responsible for um, Afghan policy and what the end state of that country was supposed to be, um, and that's that's what's called nation building. And um, I mean that failed that failed horrifically. And um, something I, you, I, I, something you said the to tremendous me. advantage. Yeah, sorry. Well, no, something you said to me yesterday as you're talking about Kabul, comparing it to the rest of the country. You said, you know, there are young men that have worked for us that are 25 years old that were five when the, when we invaded, and that's all they've ever known. So they've lived in that quote-unquote la-la land. Yeah. And it's, it's evaporated, and now their lives are in jeopardy. You know, to me, what says it all, the first NGO into to Afghanistan after the invasion was Planned Parenthood, and in June, we closed out our time in Afghanistan with the rainbow flag hanging from, in front of the embassy. Today I saw a photograph mm-hmm. of Afghan women and children being shoved up against a wall by Taliban with AK-47s. And the wall they were being shoved up against was postered, I, I sent it to you, plastered with UN posters that said things like, we can fight climate change, climate equality, educate mm-hmm. on, on, on global warming. <clears throat> and mm-hmm. so we see real human beings being shoved up against a wall by men with rifles. Uh, uh, and the wall is a wall of Western... Um, virtue signaling bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were concerned more with petty corruption um, than they were concerned with, with the, frankly, uh, the, the, the deaths of thousands of people. I mean, in terms of, in terms of the, the initiatives that were put forth and, and um, I mean, it was, it was almost, almost Stalinistic. Um, the death of a single person is, is a tragedy, but the death of a million is a statistic. I mean, you, it was, I mean, 
I'm sorry to speak in such stark terms, but the, those those were my feelings. Those were my reactions to it. I, I want to ask answer the last question or the third question, which was why does it seem like um, U.S. service personnel um, are more on the ball at helping out their Afghan counterparts um, um, in comparison to uh, helping out their Iraqi counterparts. I don't think that's true. I think American service personnel um, have have done their utmost to help out their Iraqi counterparts, their, their interpreters, their translators, working through a horrific um, bureaucratic um, system um, that, that uh, meaning um, our, our immigration system. So I don't, I don't think that's the so case So maybe it's just they, 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 they've, they've learned, you know, in, in, from Iraq, and they've just been much better at mobilizing and, 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 getting, and getting into the mainstream media. There was, there was yeah, one I, gentleman I that was on NBC, MSNBC, that just gave an epic takedown of Biden and, in resp- and to MSNBC's response to Biden's comments on what's going on. Right, it was just right. epic. And so I'm noticing that these veterans, they're on all the news channels. So, so that makes a lot of sense. It's not that yeah. they, they've learned a lot. They've, they've been here before, and, and they're bringing that yeah. knowledge forward to be more effective. Yeah, I mean, I was in Iraq when ISIS in, in, invaded Mosul, and I was very close. I was very close to Mosul at the time, and um, I can tell you there were virtually no Westerners or Western media outlets there as well. Whereas in Kabul, there there is. I mean, everybody, pretty much all of the the large Western networks have been there. So you you didn't get to see the same coverage of Mosul falling. Um, it was uh, um, you, you just you you in Iraq you didn't see and you don't see the same amount of Westerners that were in Afghanistan congregating in Kabul. Um, so I think that's another that's another aspect as well. Okay, well, I really appreciate I really appreciate that answer. Do you think 9/11's connection to Afghanistan um, maybe also has a lot to do with the American public's sort of natural visceral response to what's going on? Um, I think it's yeah, I, I I think it's connected. But here's 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 the problem with that. Um, Biden said. We went to Afghanistan on, almost 20 years ago with clear goals. Get those who attacked us on September 11, 2001, and make sure Al-Qaeda could not use Afghanistan as a base from which to attack us again. We did that a decade ago. Our mission was never supposed to be nation-building. Here's a problem with that. Um, Al-Qaeda is in Afghanistan, um, and its alliance with the Taliban is, is as strong as ever. So... The, the head of Al-Qaeda, the one who replaced uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, Ayman al-Dawahiri, has sworn a blood oath to the head of the Taliban, Haibat Allah um, al And the Taliban's number two, um, uh, Sirajuddin Haqqani, um, his dep- so the deputy of the deputy uh, commander of the Taliban, um, there, there, there are extensive intelligence dossiers um, on him, and the, U, the UN of all organizations has put forward that 
Um, he's pure Al Qaeda. Um, so, um, and the UN as well, and the UN is not known to be a particularly, you know, forward leaning organization. The UN in the UN report, um, an in- intelligence report, um, they released and, and I, they released that, that, uh, Al Qaeda is present in 10 to 15 of Afghanistan's 34 provinces. So, I mean, the, 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 the basic mission, um, the, 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 the initial mission uh, in, in Afghanistan to eliminate the Taliban and to eliminate al-Qaeda was a failure. I mean, yeah, the so Taliban and al-Qaeda were destroyed. They were disrupted, Jason. The only success that we can claim was the toppling of the Taliban government, and now they're back. Well, um, well, some the- senior Taliban and al-Qaeda were taken out, but that was a drop in the bucket. We, we, we could have, I mean, where we should have deployed every division that we had in the weeks following 9-11, um, sent them into Afghanistan, uh, bin Laden, the Taliban were surrounded in Tora Bora and, and liquidated them. And we, we failed to use decisive, overwhelming force. And um, you, we would have taken out all of the Al-Qaeda networks that are spread throughout the world. Um, and Al-Qaeda actually helped the Taliban make a recovery and the, re- the resurgence of which we're, we're witnessing right now. So it's not just the Taliban taking Afghanistan, it's Al-Qaeda. So today the Taliban said they promised that, that Afghanistan will never be used as a base to attack the United States. Sure, and their 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 fingers are crossed. Their they've crossed their fingers behind their backs. Yeah, the Taliban issue fatwas all the time, claiming they also claim that they would never invade cities. They also claim that in 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 a, a fatwa that they would never take Kabul. So today they promise uh, yeah. to be protectors of women's rights as well. So they today they right, announced that sure. they're going to protect. They're going to be the protectors of women's rights. Right, and Afghanistan will be never used as um, a base to attack the United States while reports are coming in of, of women um, being killed uh, across Afghanistan just today and yesterday. Yeah, and, and women and in, 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 um, the Taliban going to villages and winning lists of women, um, um, unmarried and, and widows, um, to marry off the Taliban commanders. Yeah. Okay, so here we are. We're at this catastrophe. Um, Biden is trying to place the, the blame on Trump. Biden owns this. Uh, and no one knows what Trump would have done. He made a mistake. In- a lot of people. A lot of people own this, but yeah. So that's what. That's the question. There's been a series of very big mistakes. Um, give us the big landmarks. Is we're going back, maybe wow. two or three. We don't have to do. You know, if you if, think of the two or three big points of of failure that brought us to this epic catastrophe i'd have to go president by president okay be fair okay so start with clinton his administration didn't take al-qaeda seriously despite the bombing of two u.s embassies in the uss Cole. um clinton waffled on multiple multiple opportunities to target bin laden um so 
that um, Al Qaeda, the Al Qaeda threat manifested during Clinton's watch, which led to 9/11. Um, Bush failed to take out Al Qaeda and the Taliban. Um, Obama, um, uh, o- o- Obama um, said that he was going to commit to Afghanistan. The Europeans failed um, in their role to build up the Afghan security forces. Obama decided that he was going to do that. Um, so he um, he began a surge, uh, one in fe- February and, and, and one in December that took our forces up to about 100,000. Um, but at the same that? time- What year was that? This is 2009, so okay. February 2009, December 2009. But at the same time, um, he um, set a public drawdown timetable of July 2011. So announced to the Taliban that he, um, you know, that we were that this uh, this surge would only be, um, you know, for 18 months. Um, by 2010, 2011. The Obama administration desperately uh, started seeking a peace deal with the Taliban. Those talks ended in a fiasco because by 2012, I think Obama wanted to say he brought the Iraq war to an end in 2011 and he brought the um, the Afghan war to an end by, tw- by 2012. That failed miserably. Peace talks ended in 2013. Then in 2014, NATO and the U.S. declared an end to combat operations. Um, and the the thing is, you, you really, uh, it, it pains me to say this, but you have to blame uh, U.S. general after U.S. general who were expected to basically lie and say that the Afghan military had stood up on its own two feet and was ready. So we've we've had 18 combatant commanders in Afghanistan, I think, and um, you know the whole idea that Afghan security forces are 300,000 strong when there's so there there were so many problems with Afghan security forces. But even that being said, um, Afghan security forces put up a hell of a fight, um, and from 2014 took about 50,000 casualties. So. Combat operations ended for American forces, and we we um, we suffered relatively no casualties. I mean, um, from 2014, um, we suffered in the past 18 months. The United States didn't lose um, one one member of our armed forces, um, but the Taliban just wore wore away at them. Um, but the Afghan forces have suffered a lot of losses right in the past 18 months. So there's a, there's a narrative being suffered, spun that they, right. they haven't been fighting, but they have been fighting. No, well, I mean, on this one, you have to you you have to take it to the Trump administration at this point. So Trump signs off on a 2017 strategy for victory, but it it was modest, and it was like a last ditch effort to prop up the Afghans. Um, get tough on Afghanistan, but that was abandoned. And um, Obama, I'm sorry, Trump and Pompeo picked up on Obama's peace plan, um, peace process with the Taliban, and um, that really, that really undercut uh, 
really undercut the Afghans um, because they were they they weren't even part of the negotiations um, on that. And um, you had Mattis, you had Mattis saying that um, we have a we have a um, we. Uh, we do look forward to victory in Afghanistan, but not a military victory. And that um, the Taliban's peace offer without preconditions was genuine. I think DOD even put out um, a statement on that, but they didn't put the original in, in, in Pashto, um, the language of the Taliban, the dominant language. Um, but it was this, we, we had genuine peace um, with, with, with the Afghans. So if you're an Afghan commander and you see the secretary of state, so um, we had with the Trump administration, um, we, we had a shift where um, um, they went so far as um, uh, Trump and Pompeo saying that the Taliban would be our partner in the war on terror. And this was, uh, we we threw the Afghan government under the bus, and I mean, if you were an Afghan military commander and saw us negotiating with the Taliban, I mean, you would have you would have been so demoralized. Um, yeah, I mean, and I would ask the question: I mean, would you support your government? I mean, would you you know would you fight against the Taliban seeing this happen? Um, and while the U.S. while the Afghan military was taking like thousands of casualties. Um, the the U.S. just proceeded on this feckless diplomacy. I mean, Trump invited the Taliban to Camp David a month after there was video of them celebrating um, 9/11. I mean, it was bad. It was really bad. I mean, there's there there's a lot of blame to go around. Um, and um, you know, to say what would happen with the, with the second term, I don't I don't know. Um, so, and then, and, and then we have, we have Biden again, um, who said in July, you know, famously that, um, which was corroborated by chairman Mike Milley, that, that the Afghan military had, uh, 30,000 strong force, um, which is really a mythical figure, um, and which collapsed three weeks later. Um, and um, there, there was a moment during a press conference where um, where Biden was asked, um, uh, trying to think of the think of the wording of it, but there was a press conference where where Biden w- was was asked um, if Kabul about ever fall. an intelligent. I'm sorry. If Kabul would ever fall. Yeah. It, um, so. Um, Biden was asked um, in a press conference um, about in, in, uh, the intelligence community uh, estimates about the Afghan government falling, and he said, "No, that's that's absolutely not true. Um, that's patently untrue." He said said twice, um, and you had, I mean, in terms of intelligence failures, I mean, this is this is as bad as nine eleven. This is as bad as the Tet Offensive. I mean, what the Afghan military, what the Taliban was able to do, um, all under our noses, was was 
plan, organize, recruit, deploy forces for this uh, offensive, um, pre-position um, arms all, all throughout the country um, under the under the nose of, of the U.S., NATO, our intelligence agencies, all of that. Um, what I would say, Jason, the net net of all of this is where's the accountability? I mean, where is the accountability for, for, for these, these gross failures? I mean, if you, someone working a regular job, if, if they, they, they failed at something, um, something that was minuscule compared to this, they would be fired. I mean, and, uh, you know, their, their cash register is missing $100. You work at a restaurant, you're gone, you're fired, yeah. you're done. Yeah. I mean, how many people were fired? Um, for failing to forecast even to a small degree ISIS or the Iraqi insurgency or even Iran's clandestine military uh, nuclear program. They were promoted. promoted. They were not only promoted. Right. These agencies' budgets ballooned. So you need accountability for gross incompetence. I mean, that's what the American people need. Or this is going to keep happening. Um, and I mean, these are the same agencies tasked with protecting the home front. Um, so if we have this level of gross incompetence, um, in, in, in Afghanistan against rural country bumpkin infantrymen on, and I'm referring to the Taliban, I mean, um, yeah, how know, what happens when we're. I ask mm-hmm. people how many Taliban there are. They go, oh, there's like 3 million, 4 million. How many, how many members of the Taliban are there really? It's hard to say. I mean, it's hard to say. The Taliban's a rural phenomenon. Um, so, I mean, the, the, I don't, I've never bought the, the Department of Defense's figure that, that the president cites as well, that there's 75,000. Um, I mean, I think they're in the hundreds of thousands. I mean, Let's say 150,000. Let's double that. And they're armed with, um, they're armed with uh, Cold War era AK-47s. Yeah, they're infantrymen. Well, now they're armed with heavy, um, they're armed with heavy weaponry. Thanks to the United um, States. Yeah, I mean, um, they're in control of Black Hawk helicopters as well. Um, drones, they've captured drones. Drones, absolutely. I don't know if they can fly the Black Hawks, but yeah. And, and the, the, the the thing is, the thing is with Afghanistan that, that we have to be really forewarned about is that a, a Taliban, and I'm going to say Al Qaeda victory, an American defeat in Afghanistan is going to in, inspire our enemies uh, abroad. Um, you know, not just China and Russia and Iran, um, but um, terrorist networks throughout the world in the same way that the Soviet defeat in Afghanistan inspired ultimately and created Al-Qaeda. Um, well, you know, on that note, uh, a friend of ours that we were with together in Washington, D.C. a couple weeks ago from Nigeria messaged me yesterday that uh, she's, she's sheltering in place with her daughter because... Islamists in her village, Islamists have been in her village killing people and that the government has ordered a curfew. So we're we're already seeing extremists being emboldened in Africa from what's happening in Afghanistan. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, what, like one thing that I, I, I failed to touch on about the Biden administration, um, as of this year, so the Afghan, Afghan security forces received air support and intelligence support from the U.S. As of, as of this year, uh, that largely stopped. And um, those were those those were 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 two capabilities that that uh, allowed the Afghan security forces a chance of keeping the Taliban in check. And when we withdrew air support and intelligence for the South Vietnamese Army, um, the the North was able to invade successfully. Um, and it was something that we didn't have to do. Um, I mean, it was almost that we, we guaranteed their collapse. Well, we built a military um, that was dependent on exactly. our air support intelligence. We built, it was just, we right. built it. We built a military that could only fight effectively using our strategies, our tactics, absolutely, our air land. Doctrine. Absolutely. We re- we removed the air and their whole yes. system was built on our air land doctrine. That's exactly right. That's the same thing that happened in Iraq. There's a direct power- parallel there. There's a direct and while while that was in place, um you had a you had a status quo stalemate. So you basically had a situation in which the Taliban couldn't take over most of Afghanistan and defeat the Afghan government and the government couldn't outright defeat the Taliban. And, um, you know, to be frank, the U the U S itself is not able to defeat terrorist networks in, in, in virtually all of the countries in which we're engaged. This is not like the second world war. People talk about this in, 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 in military terms. I'm not, I'm not a great military expert, but, they, they talk about this as if there's a clear winner and a clear loser. Um, this is a, this is a war of terrorism. This is, this is like a war meeting the most violent crime imaginable that must continually be combated. Um, and I, I, I'll say that there's no clear winner in these things. It, it continues, but there, there, there are clear losers. And that's when you have another nine 11, you have another seven seven in the UK or Madrid, Paris, etc. Um, what the status quo in Afghanistan allowed us to do, with minimal cost in, in DoD terms, um, meaning I mean we lost, we we didn't lose a single person in eighteen months, and uh, even even in, in budgetary terms with the Pentagon seven hundred billion dollar budget, um, I think the strategic benefits of Afghanistan were, were, were absolutely worth it um, in, 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 in preventing another terrorist haven, in having a base of operations uh, to be able to go after terrorist networks. Um, and I mean, how do people feel about Al-Qaeda being back and having a government with heavy weaponry and with, a, and so I, I well, well, well John, that we, the- John, most Americans don't know. This is our media. They run the same clips over and over. There's no right. in-depth analysis. They have these talking heads on for the most part. Right. Um, it's very clear that their, their, their real level of knowledge, it's very shallow. 
Um, yeah. And you hear the same talking points repeated over and over. And then you can see these narratives. Now they're blaming the Afghans. You can see these narratives. Most right. Americans don't understand that we spent $2 trillion in 20 years training them to fight like us. <laughs> and yeah. then we remove we, our command and control. We remove our air power. We remove our intelligence. And it doesn't work that way. And they can't yeah, I think succeed. We spent a, I think we spent, I think the figure is, I think we spent $138 billion directly on training the Afghan security forces. Um, the, the other costs and expenses, um, I mean, it, it, the, the, the amount was staggering. Um, but I think, I think that's a, that's a more precise number, um, which, um, but, but, but let's, 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 we, we, we say that, you know, we can't have a forever war or we can't, we can't stay there. We can't remain there forever. What about South Korea? We have almost 30,000 troops still in South Korea. Why? Because they can't handle the North Korean threat. Because if we pulled out, North Korea would invade. What's the difference between Afghanistan and, and South Korea? I mean, why are why do we still? It, I mean, it, the Korean War ended in 1953, right? I mean, why do we still have 30,000 troops by the by by the argument that's being used that we can't be there for forever? Um, I mean, we, we, we should apply that argument as well to, to South Korea. We should apply that to the uh, uncountable. I, 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 I can't count the amount of bases that we have throughout the world. Um, here's an interesting factoid. Our European allies at NATO wanted to keep up to 8,000 of their forces in Afghanistan for their, their national security interests. They were more bullish than, than, than we were. And we would keep 2,500. Um, but our government was more feckless than the Europeans. And the, our President Biden presented a false choice uh, in saying that, that, like, that we, would, we would be uh, staying there and that would mean expand, dramatically expanding troop levels. No one was talking about that. It was to keep 2,500. Americans there, um, combine that with NATO, NATO forces in with Intel and air support. And, um, and you know, you, you, I, I, you would have had a Korea like situation. I know it's not the best analogy. Um, but I, I, I think it, I think it's very instructive to look at a country that, that, that we left 70 well, years ago. Well, John, it's an instructive we, analogy, but I think more so than that, it should reveal to us. And I'm as, as you know, I'm as, you know, I, I despise war. I'm not eager for regime change wars. Um, but we have to ask ourselves when all, when all of a sudden we're mouthing, it's time to get out of Afghanistan. We've been there too long. We're not, you know, we've, we've made our commitment. We're saying that, but we're not addressing we're still in South Korea. Our bases are all over Europe. We have a base right. in Okinawa. We, you know, we are, we are in, how many countries are we in? We're right? all over Central, Central Asia, the neighborhood of Afghanistan as well. Right. So, yeah. so we have to ask ourselves, why are we mouthing these talking points? Well, we've been, we're being influenced by campaigns designed to get us to support this decision. 
And yeah, that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. So I think that's I what's most destructive that. about it, right? We have to. Ask, well, why aren't we saying let's get out of South Korea? Why, why are we saying let's get out of Europe? Why are we in Sicily? Why are we in Italy? Why are we not asking this question? And I'm not saying we should come back from those places. I am for peace, and I I believe that we have peace through strength, and we shouldn't. Um, the world is not a utopia. Uh, again, I'm not for gallivanting around the world doing regime change wars, uh, unnecessary right. regime change wars. But with Afghanistan specifically, I remember very clearly the promises we made those people. Mm -hmm. um, promises that we forgot we made and never meant to keep. And so I think that we as a people need a real national um, recollection. We need to do a recollection of our conscience. We need to... We need to yeah, examine our conscience and ask ourselves, what kind of people have we become? Maybe we're still in South Korea. Maybe we're still in Europe because those roots were planted when we were a people that made commitments and meant them. And those roots are so deep, they're hard to, to pull out. But when our generations have planted seeds, they're really easy to uproot. When our generations make promises, uh, we've actually never meant to keep them. Yeah, for me, the big thing is accountability or um, grotesque incompetence, accountability, uh, lessons learned. How could this have happened? How could how could this this is this has been twenty years in the making? How could this have happened? And the American taxpayers deserve this. The, I mean, they're the American taxpayers are footing the bill for this. And this is the this is the failure of our government. This is the failure of our. Of our of our bureaucracy, this is the failure. And I, I don't, I by no means am I am I um, criticizing any service member um, who who deployed to Afghanistan, Iraq, etc. I mean, um, God bless those people. Um, but what I'm getting at is, um, there, is there needs to be a, there, there needs to be accountability for for the 18 generals, combatant commanders, um, uh, who, um, who, who, and, and, and members of, of intelligence agencies who, who, who filtered intelligence to fit political narratives. And that goes all the way up to the president that, that, um, you know, and we can't, I, I can't stress enough. This was one of the greatest intelligence failures in our history. Um, and I mean, with, with, um, we, we can't, we, we cannot afford anything close to this domestically. Um, the loss of life, the, the destruction that could occur, um, as a result of this. And we're dealing with the same, same, um, governmental agencies that, that, that prosecuted this war. Um, we're, we're relying on them to defend us. Um, and that scares the hell out of me. Having been a member, uh, a member of this quote unquote community, um, it scares the hell out of me. And, um, and I can tell you that, you know, the line that, well, we, we know what's going on. It's just classified that that's utter BS. That's utter BS. That's something that people hide behind. Well, now we know they did. They had no clue. They either had no, no clue of what was going on, 
no will to communicate it, or they lack the ability to communicate it to decision makers. It's that's it. Either they didn't yeah, know, it, they knew and they didn't say, or they knew and they could not communicate clearly the consequences of Biden's decision and, and all these previous failures. It's only and, one and, of those three. Right. In late July, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Billy, said the Af- Afghans had the capability to keep their government in power, basically. And then over the course of weeks, it, it was whittled down to one year that the government could hold out. And then that quickly shifted to six months. And then within a week, 60 to 90 days. And then within a couple of days, it was a week, if not a couple of days before it would fall. Um, well, you knew was, ahead of time after, because as I was working to get people out, you were exactly right on how many days we had. Yeah. When, they were telling us six months. You said you've got less than 10 days. I w- yeah, I was watching. I was watching the districts and provinces fall, and I just I know a little bit. Of, I know enough about the country to know um, uh, what what the Taliban needed to take over um, to, to 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 for example to take to take Kabul. Um, I knew that the Taliban had control of, of almost all the major highways with border crossings and whatnot. They were much smarter than they were. Um, in the mid '90s, when they were fighting the Northern Alliance, they knew what they were doing, and um, well, yeah. And thanks so to you telling was, me that, uh, it saved a, a woman's life because they were kind of dilly dallying, and the, a decision was made um, that would have they wanted to do something 24 hours later, and because of right. what you told me, they did it that day, and because they did it that day, they got out right under the wire. So. Yeah, uh, the well, intelligence did, matters. We, it matters in uh, accurate reporting. Yeah, and uh, intelligence is life and death. Intelligence is life and death. And um, after after an intelligence failure of this magnitude, um, if if something isn't isn't done, um, I I fear I fear um, I fear some some catastrophic things over the horizon. All right, so here's the last question, and, and then you can, mm-hmm. you can add anything you want. But this morning, my wife just, she was crying. She said, honey, I, you know, in the past year, I lost my father to COVID. Um, yeah. I, uh, we had to move. We've all had COVID this month. I have COVID pneumonia now. Um, you know, and she listed a litany of, of just things we've suffered. And she said, I've never been, it's not affected me. I've not been depressed. In the past couple of days watching what's happening in Afghanistan, I, I really, I've never felt this much despair. And I'm hearing this from so many people, veterans, veterans' yeah. wives, veterans' families. Um, and I'm, I'm glad. It shows to me that there is a part of us left. There are those of us left who have a sense of shame and responsibility. But here yeah. we are, we're just citizens. My wife homeschools my five children, yet she is watching the television. And she said, why do I feel so much shame over this? Why yeah. am I despairing over this? And I said, well, you know, Socrates said, it's better to suffer injustice than to commit one. And so your father died of the CCP virus. We're sick. We had to move from, uh, Texas, from Hawaii to Texas because of the lockdowns for me to continue to do my work uh, and disrupt my family. All this... These, you could say we've suffered, um, but you feel that you in some small way, and she's a New Yorker, 9-11 impacted her. She lost friends in the towers. 
I said, you feel personally responsible for the suffering of the Afghan people. I think a lot, I feel that way. Um, yeah. I don't think the people responsible for the policies that have uh, abandoned these folks feel anything at all. I really no, don't. No, I no, don't. No. So what no, about, we have, <clears throat> I'm sorry, yeah. go ahead. Please. I apologize. No. Please so what would you, you say to those of us? We're just regular old citizens. Um, but we feel a profound sense of shame and ignobility and we want to do something. Do we, you know, what do we do? We do, you do congressional committees, uh, investigations. What do we bang the drums for? What do we do? I just found out they're bringing some Afghan interpreters um, near me. They're going to be processed. I'm going to find out best how I can volunteer and serve uh, those men. Um, but, yeah, what would you tell us? What, 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 what would you say to us with your, your, your experience? One thing I would say, um, I've, I've traveled and, and, and lived in many countries around the world, and I would say um, Americans – the American people, they're great people. They're really a great people. Um, our political class um, is pretty awful. Um, and I agree with you. I, I overwhelmingly, um, uh, there, there is a lack of, of compassion and even humanity um, for the sufferings that, that, that go on as a result of, of, launching needless military operations or withdrawing and leaving, leaving our, our friends and allies, you know, to their, to their fates, which is death. Um, but I would say the American people, um, I feel ashamed to be American right now. Um, and, and I can tell you that the mission that I did in Afghanistan nearly broke me. It was so difficult. Um, but I still feel, I feel ashamed um, for my country. And, um, I think only good people feel like that. I think good, only good people with a conscience. I think we, we need to demand accountability from our government. Um, and I think, uh, every, every American who, who, who cares not only about, um, not only about our Afghan friends and the people of Afghanistan or people of Iraq or people of anywhere in the world um, where the, the, the U.S. has had a, an impact on, on, on a given society, I think they, they need to, to, to write their, their, their congressmen and women and demand accountability, um, demand accountability from our, our governmental agencies um, who, 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 are, are ultimately responsible for um, for our, our, our foreign policy and and for operationalizing our, our foreign policy and our foreign policy initiatives. Um, I mean, I I think we need um, I think we need accountability down to the agency level. I think there should be I think that there should be public hearings on this. Um, I think, I think that, um, I, I think, you know, and I, 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 I will never badmouth our military. We have a wonderful military. We, they're, you know, they're, they're the greatest Americans that we have. Um, but I think that our, 
the the American military leadership um, as well, um, who presided over 20 years of of this debacle in Afghanistan, had have to be called to the carpet as to what went wrong, and it, and in some cases, it it it, it they, they may not be culpable. It, I and I would like to know from them. I'd like to hear from them how they were pressured by administrations um, to give the right answers um, to, to make, make sure that their intelligence was in, in, in line with, with, um, with political agendas. Um, this, is a, this is a huge point of inflection for our country as far as I see it. And um, if we gloss over this, and if we forget about Afghanistan a month from two weeks from now, a month from now, six months from now, um, not only will that be a, a, a tragedy and a loss, um, that 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 will not augur well for our future. Um, and once again, um, if if we don't do something in the here and now, which is call for accountability, extreme accountability on this. Um, we're going to see catastrophic things, I would forecast, over the horizon. Um, and I think people should be, uh, be really concerned about that. And I think while we have time, um, we need to do something in the here and now. Um, and I really... I, it, it, it pains me to think that that Af Afghanistan can be swept under the rug within a week or two weeks by the media, and we will have moved on to something else. Um, and I think the media needs to to be held accountable for Afghanistan as well. Um, uh, the the um, so the, the, that's what I would say. Um, that's something that's uh, you know the intelligence failure has become obvious, but the failure of our media. I think these are canary in the coal mine moments for us to realize that we can't count on our media. We can't count on our intelligence community. We can't count on our elected officials to dig down and dig deep to try to really understand the information that they're being presented in these subcommittees. And yeah. we, can't, we can't count on traditionally we would look to, I, I'm Catholic, we would look to the hierarchy of the Catholic Church and the USCCB to be engaged thoughtfully in, in, in matters that are this important, that's silly to even consider. So then yeah. it just comes down to us. You're listening to this show. This is not your normal audience. It's not your normal tribe. It's growing. It's quite yeah. big. I think we're going to be the number one podcast uh, downloaded in New Zealand this week. I'm looking at the numbers. It's just around the world as well. But um, that we each and every one of us, has to just take responsibility. And I, and this is, John, what I'm hopeful about. I really do believe that this might be what, these might be paddles on the heart of uh, the body politic, and it might get that heart beating again. Yeah, when I, when I use the term point of inflection, that's what I'm referring to. And I think if right now enough Americans can contact um, their elected officials and, um, to the point where there's 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 just a such a 
a groundswell that this cannot be ignored. Um, and I think that there has to be a very public um, inquiry into this um, where the leadership responsible, and we're not going to get ex-presidents, of course, but the leadership responsible for for this throughout the years um, need to come in and need to need to testify, need to say what went wrong, why it went wrong, and this can be. I think this needs to be um, an, a, a, a monumental learning experience for our country. Um, that will that 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 hopefully um, could influence uh, the, the the rebuilding or reconstitution, um, you know, of um, of our foreign policy establishment and, and aspects of our military. Um, it's not going to get any better. The world's not getting safer, and now the United States, our credibility. Um, as allies and our credibility in terms of will, which means our, our deterrence um, has to be at, I can't say an all-time low, but in recent memory at an all-time low, um, which invites attacks from all kinds of players, from transnational terrorist networks to nation states. Um, we we look we look weak we look feckless um, we look cynical we look and um, you know I I think the the first responsibility of of our political class um, is to protect the American people to protect the homeland and. Um, and maybe so, this can be an end to the woke military. My son, when he was in Syria, and they were, you know, nose to nose with ISIS, they, every right. couple of weeks he was having to go to gender and yeah. uh, these sensitivity classes in Syria. Right. And when you have a woke military, that leads, to, and you have generals who are politicians, and they're, and, and they're kissing up instead of thinking about their soldiers, their Marines, their airmen, sailors um the mission gets muddled and it leads to afghan women being pushed up against a wall and shot that's that's your gender sensitivity right there it leads to homosexuals yeah. in kabul uh having walls pushed on them there's your there's your uh gender sensitivity for you right there let the military do its job don't take it as an opera it's not a public school where you get to come in and you know push ideology on them they should be trained yeah. to do their job. They should be supported in their job and their mission. It's, it's a big enough job. There's no bigger job in the world. There's no more challenging mission in the world. They don't have the bandwidth for your silliness. Move along. So maybe hopefully this is the end to the woke nonsense as well. I pray. Well, the, um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff defended what you're saying. Um, and the... And has and the Secretary of Defense has presided over this um, administration's pushing these policies within the mili military, and they've just they've just failed at their primary task in Afghanistan. K 
catastrophically. Um, so, and um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, if he didn't believe with believe in this wokeism, if he didn't, he could have stepped down. The same thing with the Secretary of Defense. I will question. I'll ask now: How many people are going to step down as a result of of the collapse of Afghanistan? How many people will step step down? Um, I'll say virtually. I'll say virtually none, if none. I say, I say um, none. And then here's another question: um, How mm-hmm. many former combatant commanders will step forward and say, "We need to talk, Congress. We need to get together. We need that. They, they don't need to. They shouldn't need to be called, right?" They should be stepping forward saying, I was a part of this catastrophe. Let's figure out what went wrong. This is what somebody with nobility would do. Somebody with dignity would do. Someone that was thoughtful to the history of this republic would do. The future of this republic would do. How many do you think will step forward? I suspect none. And I think instead they're going to write memoirs and spin history to justify themselves. They're probably already all racing out to hire ghostwriters to rewrite right. history, to carve a little safe space for them. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, when you get out, when, when you retire as, as, uh, certainly a combatant commander, but a senior, senior, um, flag rank officer, general or admiral, um, I mean, you, um, it's almost inevitable that you will become a very wealthy person. The same thing holds for, people who saw who serve in the intelligence community at, at, at higher ranks but these are people that have, have served and now are very are very wealthy people as a result of of the service um uh, and 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 the careers that american taxpayers paid for um so they're unaffected by this well and that's why i greatly admire you you know because you could have been one of those guys that leveraged your career for wealth. And um, unfortunately, because the nature of your work, I can't say we can't say who you are, really what you've done or what you're doing now, other than I can say that you have leveraged all of that to serve the people we made promises to. And um, you have, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to, I don't want to speak out of turn, but you have given uh, a lot in, in many countries and, um, uh, I, I just wish we had more men and women that make it into those positions that recognize that the privilege of service where they get to serve puts upon them a duty that I see that you recognize. So, you know, be careful what you ask for. When you get in certain positions, um, then that privilege burdens you with a duty for the rest of your life that you can't ever escape. And to, right. to think that they look at this, instead, they're looking at opportunities. Which boards can I get on? Which speakers bureau can I yeah. become a member of? What size book deal can I become? Can, right. I, can I get? Instead of, I, wow, I, wow, I was part of a, um, I, w- I, I was part of a community that made a promise that we have really been failing to keep. How do I leverage all of this experience, knowledge, and relationships uh, to continue the mission in the private sector to serve these communities? I, I just, I've seen that right. in very few people. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. I have to say that the people that have to be honored the most are those who, who paid the ultimate price, gave the ultimate sacrifice in their lives and, and the families of these people. 
who lost their sons and daughters or husbands, wives. And keep this in mind, this, this figure, um, to date, 60,000 uh, service men and women have committed suicide, uh, those who served in the Iraq and Afghan war, which is greater than the death toll, death toll of the entire Vietnam war. Um, so keep in mind the sacrifices of, of these people and the hundreds of thousands of other people who have been maimed and who have been horribly scarred psychologically fighting the good fight because they're great Americans, they're great patriots, and they didn't do it for the money. They did it for love of their country. And this is this this goes back to me saying that Americans are great people. They're really they're Americans are really good, good-hearted, great people, um, and and that's the one thing that gives me hope. Regular Americans, not our political class, by no means, not the establishment, not our so-called elite, um, but the American people. This might seem and like, I think this might mm-hmm. seem like a strange analogy, but we've talked about this a lot. I think the one mistake we have made as a people, it's sort of like Catholic parents in the 70s who sent their children to diocesan Catholic schools or Jesuit schools because right. they just knew they were going to go and get a good education and they weren't really paying attention. And I think that we mm-hmm. had this trust in our intelligence yeah. community. We had this trust yeah. in our elected officials. We had this trust in NGOs and church leadership. And we just kind of thought, I did. I remember moving to D.C. from college and thinking I was going to run into powerful and influential people from prominent families that had great educations that were going to be ordering their lives into the service of the vulnerable. And, you know, you quickly get that illusion smacked away. Um, I think that's what we need to understand that um, I, we are the, I don't think any other country in the world that would have been involved in an epic catastrophe like this, the people would feel so deeply and be so angry as the American people are. And that is beautiful. I'm grateful for that. But we need to take that and harness that and say, now we need to pay attention. We can no longer imagine that uh, the hen house is being guarded. There is no one guarding the hen house. And so we all have to be more disciplined and more engaged um, for the good of this country. Yeah. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And. Well, brother, I promised I would only take 30 to 60 minutes, and I, I went over by 10. Um, no problem. No problem. And uh, I, Do you I, have any more questions? You know, I don't. I, um, I don't. I want to say this. I know you don't like doing these shows, um, but this has been the most informed for me personally, and I've been spending a lot of time and trying to gather a lot of information. Just talking to you this hour has given me more information than I could have gathered in weeks. So I'm so grateful for you coming on and wanting to share this. You can come on, as you know, you can come on anytime. And is there anything you want to say that I didn't ask? Um, yeah, um, I want to add one thing. So I, I talked about that this is basically, in my view, a Taliban al-Qaeda victory in Afghanistan. Um, I want to mention Iran in parting. Because the Obama administration pushed so hard for an Iran deal, and I understand the current Biden administration um, is in lockstep with that. And 
the American people should keep in mind. So keep that keep that on the radar, and also keep in mind that Iran has been providing intelligence and material support to the Taliban throughout the war um, to target American forces. Um, and there have been leaked intelligence, U.S. intelligence reports that Iran has even paid bounties to the Taliban for targeting American troops in Afghanistan. And that tracks with the hundreds of Americans who ultimately died as a result of Iranian operations in Iraq, which you were not allowed to talk about or admit to during the greater part of the Iraq war. Um, and this was despite the fact that Iran was industrial, industrially producing um, IEDs, so roadside bombs, and ESPs, which are a stronger version of them, um, to target American soldiers, and Marines, and, and, and Iraqi forces in Iraq. And this is the country that we, wanna, we, we want to negotiate with and um, have, have, uh, have this, is, this is the next country slotted for us to have peace talks with. I just want, I want the listeners to, to just to keep this on the radar and think about the context that I just provided. And then when you put that in um, with Russia having a very open and aggressive Eastern strategy, we're looking at an axis of evil that could run from Moscow through, through, through Iran, through Pakistan, through Afghanistan, through China. Yeah. And we just, we just gave up a critical base in Afghanistan for counterterrorism. Yeah, we just gave it up. So, um, and and um, Iran wanted us out of their eastern border, Afghanistan. They want us out of their western border, Iraq. So, I expect now that they will intensify their strikes on. Um, American military elements there, and I just saw a video of uh, an Iranian-backed Iraqi militia saying that they're going to begin targeting the American military in Jordan, and that this will be a region-wide campaign. So this is this goes to back to what it, what the fall of 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 Afghanistan does, and how it how it emboldens. Um, our enemies, um, and this is this is the the fallout. This is an example of the fallout from it. Um, but the point that I'm trying to make is, um, how can we negotiate with a government that has has killed our 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 soldiers and Marines? How can we do that? How can we how can we enter into peace talks with with the with the 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 Taliban, um, whose number two is 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 Al Qaeda, um, and who Al Qaeda is has sworn a blood oath to. And what I a mean, grave just, scandal that unless you listen to the Jason Jones show, you're not going to know that MSNBC, yeah. CNBC, Fox probably will not even talk about. It's just not going to be talked about. It's just going to be glossed can, over, swept under the rug. Sure, and I'm just. T- Jason, I'm just touching, I'm touching, not 
not superficially, but I'm not going that into depth on these things. Look, I, I want to um, go into depth with you. I'd like to talk about Iran more because people think we couldn't wrestle Afghanistan and people think that we can handle Iran. You know, that might be a whole other show um, that the beast that Iran is. Um, the running that the running regime is, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The people the are the best. We've are, talked about that. Talk, the best. Share share that about the polls uh, of the Iranian uh, public opinion in the Middle East towards America. Yeah, that, yeah. Um, um, Iran consistently has the Iranian people have consistently have the highest opinion polls of the United States uh, um, in, in the Middle East. Um, I mean. Um, America, anecdotally, anecdotally, Americans that I know that have gone to Iran on vacation um, say that they were they they were treated so wonderfully by the Iranian people. And I have I have a tremendous amount of Iranian friends in Iran and outside of Iran, and uh, they're just terrific people, um, natural friends with Americans. They just have a horrible regime. Um, Iran is is in me my top two or three countries in the world I'd want to go to. Unfortunately, I was a producer on the stoning of Soraya M. <laughs> and yeah. my name was the first name when the credits rolled. And my producing partner said, I said, thank you for, why did you give me such a prominent credit? He's like, so they come after you first. And they did. I was in Iranian newspapers and called all sorts of horrible things. But so yeah. I don't think I'll be going to Iran anytime soon as much as I, I really would like to go. And I made a movie in Farsi. Like I, I could do a, we could do a screening or something, but I think we're going to have to wait for a regime change there before that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, our, our press hasn't, our, our American press hasn't reported on the atrocities of that. The, uh, the recent atrocities that the Iranian regime has inflicted on the Iranian people, um, where, uh, 4,000 4, were slaughtered. In, in protest in 2019, and are continue people are continuing to be slaughtered um, over issues uh, like water shortages and um, abject poverty and everything that you can imagine. Um, it's just not politically correct uh, if you're a if you're an American media outlet to report those things. Um, now, and we can and we can keep feeding people social justice junk food so they feel full. There's no reason to really engage in really tragic, serious issues that take thoughtfulness and fortitude to engage in. So we'll yeah, just do absolutely. we'll just do BLM, Antifa. We'll talk about Governor Cuomo all day and his his uh, you know misdeeds. And we're not going to talk about him killing elderly people. That's too much. But we will talk about him, you know. Uh, Sexual scandals. We love that. We love sexual scandals. But when it comes to real tragedies in the world, um, yeah, we look away. And our media looks away. I think the American people would like to know, but they don't know what they don't know. They wake up every morning. They take their kids to school. They go to work. Their boss is breathing down their neck. They've missed paychecks yeah, because of COVID. They're, they're two yeah. mortgages behind. You know, they're struggling. And they turn on the news. They're looking for information. And then they get... Uh, global warming is the greatest cause of problems yeah. in the world. They're never going to know that there's a water shortage. And if they do, they'll say global warming is causing the 4,000 people died in Iran because of global warming, because of right. the water shortage was caused by climate change. And that's why the regime killed the 4,000 people. That's how they, right. if, if you ever hear that story, I think that's how it would be presented. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the American people have in uh, have in, have genuinely, in genuine terms, I mean, every day enter into a, a an on from their end an honest social contract with their government that um, they defer to the government on on all issues that the government is supposed to be responsible for, including including homeland security and national defense and they trust their government and um this isn't on the it's not on the american people that they don't know about these issues you know and it, it the same thing applies to the media um but that's the media i think by now it's, it's become pretty obvious um how 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 warped mainstream media is i think the american people have woken up to that and i think the american people are much much smarter than um, than, um, than 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 the media and, and the the progressive establishment class would give them credit for. They're much smarter. The American people are much much uh, much more savvy than they're given credit for, uh, and they're operating under good faith, whereas the other other side isn't, uh, which puts them at a tremendous disadvantage. So and and they're 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 trying to row the boat, like you said. Their boss is breathing down their necks, and they're they're trying to survive. They're trying to get their their, their to pay their to pay their mortgage or pay their pay their rent on their apartment to you know put food on the table to get their kids in school to you know to um, get their get get their get their car into the the the, the shop, um, you know so. By the way, yeah, all of this we're talking about, my family did today. My wife had to get the car to the shop. I'm fighting COVID. We got homeschool yeah. starting, and this is this is what we exactly. do. The good news is we got alternative media. We got the Jason Jones Show. We have yep. all these podcasts. You can watch Al Jazeera. You can watch uh, these alternative news programs from around the world. You, you can also – I use Flipboard, and I take topics and issues and places like Afghanistan, Iraq, pro-life, and every news story in the world – comes right into my feed every day on that issue aggregated yeah um i i I get every hashtag i want gets fed into my flipboard so we can be we should become again we can't be passive anymore we can't count on the nightly news um to inform us it will indoctrinate us we can't count on the the uh the comedy shows at 10 o'clock after the news to entertain us again they'll indoctrinate us so we have to be very thoughtful we have to we have to shun um, instruments of influence and gaslighting, and then search out news outlets, writers that write on the topics that interest us, and take advantage of apps that aggregate that information, get it right into your your phone, right into your. And then yeah. there's things like Epoch Times, which I subscribe yeah. to. So Steve, Bann- I'm a big fan of Steve Bannon's podcast. So there's a lot of there's a lot of ways for us to to get information. Um, I think, yeah, I think the American people have to remember that they're in charge. It's their tax, it's their hard earned, earned dollars that support our government. Um, they're paying for all of this, and I think I think they should know where this money's going. And um, I think that's one really good area to start with in terms of accountability. Um, asking your, your, uh, your, your, your representative, for example, you know, where is my tax 
where is my tax money going? How is it being spent? Um, the American people are in charge. Um, it's often not presented like that from from from, from um, the perspective of our of our government and our elite. Um, but um, and we're not bumping up against the best and the brightest when we try to exert influence. You know, just through my little organization and projects that you and I have done together. We can influence the process. We can influence policy. We can influence members yeah. of Congress. We can. It's sometimes it seems like an impossible cloud. But, you know, if you are the guy in your district that you know you're a member of Congress, you host a coffee yeah. uh, when they're a state rep and, and support them and they run for Congress and you build that relationship and it's relationship building. It's not. Yeah. And they're going to let you down and you're going to have disagreements and you never break that relationship. You always and you don't talk to them about everything. You're not the guy that beg to cause them about taxes or cause them, cause them about the second amendment. You know, if you're listening to this show, you're the person that contacts them because you're there to advance the interests of the vulnerable. That's, that's, well, that's what I see my job is. So you build those relationships. The next thing you know, you're shocked. I have several members of Congress's close friends. I can ask them uh, to give them uh, sample op-eds or things that they can do, or maybe sample legislation. And next thing you know, it's being introduced these are things mm-hmm. that all of us can do because all politics are local. I can't know your congressman. You can. But right. You you can't demand your congressman's respect. You know, we were able to get some some friends out of Afghanistan because of a relationship with a member of Congress I had for 30 years. You have mm-hmm. to build and maintain these relationships. And, right. and you don't you don't look across the country. You look at you where you live. And maybe right. your member of Congress is is untouchable and out of reach and ideologically different, maybe in a different party, then you build a relationship with a state representative and you help get that person into Congress. And then, right. and then it might be 12 years later that they can hold a, a committee hearing that like something we pulled off about 12 years ago that leads to the cessation of bombing in the Nuba mountains in Sudan. This is mm-hmm. what we can all do. Every one of, the, of us listening can do this. And the first thing we yeah, can do absolutely. right now is just write our members of Congress and say, there needs to be accountability for this debacle in Afghanistan. We need an autopsy. We need to know how yep. we got here and who is responsible. We need the truth and we need accountability. That's all we're asking for because because we footed the bill for this. We paid for it. And they should and the American and and the, the American people should be mad. And the good news is John they're mad. Um, they're mad. Now, my, my COVID pneumonia is about to let loose. Um, before I, I interviewed you, I did my best to get all the congestion out, but I can tell I'm about to, lo- I'm about to go into one of these horrible COVID pneumonia coughing fits. I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show. Maybe my, we can do another show in a couple of weeks. And I think you and I are going to have maybe a big announcement soon for folks too. Uh, I, I can't wait to announce that, but, uh, well, my pleasure, my pleasure. And, and, and uh, my best to everybody out there, all the great Americans. All right, guys, let's be clear. I, this, John is one of my best friends, my best friend. And uh, he's, he's the man I respect most in the world. And he's not the type of guy that likes to run out there and do media interviews. So I'm so grateful that he came on to this show. As I said in the beginning, this is a man who not only has disciplined himself to know the languages, who's lived in the region for over 20 years, who's been wounded three times, uh, and then now in his post, now in his career after being an intelligence officer, he's 
really working to leverage his life, his experience, his abilities to advance the interests of vulnerable communities. I think you heard in this interview a man who has knowledge that has been earned over a lifetime, a lifetime of commitment, uh, first as a young student to languages, then in a, a life of public service, and a commitment not only to the people of the United States, but to the people we've made promises to. This, I want this show to be listened to by as many people as possible. And uh, so I'd ask that you share the show, uh, like I did in the beginning, in the intro. Share it with your, your friends, your family, your members of Congress, influencers that you know. Um, and we'll be doing some more shows like this, this coming up. I uh, apologize if this interview, this interview had to be done. As you can probably hear in my voice, I, I do have COVID, I have pneumonia, and uh, I'm not feeling the best, but this show could not wait another day. I really wanted to get it out there. And um, with this podcast, it's growing and has an audience all over the world. Um, we are going to fight back against the narratives that are going to be generated as they seek to form public opinion to change how we see what is undeniably a great catastrophe and a national embarrassment. This cannot be swept under the rug. The canary in the coal mine has died, and we the people, we need now to take responsibility. We need to make sure there is accountability, and we need to make sure that we never make promises like this again that we do not intend to keep. We never go to a war, to war again. We don't intend to win. And we, we never behave in such an ignoble, shameful fashion. And, um, and so this is the lesson. This is the lesson I hope that we will learn as a country. And I am very hopeful. I am really, as we talked a lot about, it was an almost impossible task to wake, you know, to bring media attention to the plight of the Iraqis as ISIS was raging across the country. Um, but the sudden, passionate, spontaneous response of the American people, the shock uh, has given me hope that um, we will, the paddles are to the chest and we're about, that heart might start beating again. All right, I am on all kinds of medicine, probably uh, talking way too much. Um, thank you again. This episode is being uh, brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. Become a monthly supporter. Also, as always, this show has been brought to you by the my, MyPillow.com, Mike Lindell's MyPillow. Great products. Great guy. Not only does he make a great product, uh, he likes to support shows like this. So I think it's very important that we support uh, Mike Lindell. Not because, you know, he's supporting us although we should do that because he's supporting us. Uh, he makes a great pillow, the best pillow. The Giza sheets are the best, and there's specials on all of that. Right now, go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, use the code Jones, get deep discounts and everything. There's a special uh, this month on the Giza Dream sheets. We say, you know, our mission at the Vulnerable People Project, which sponsors this show, is to be in solidarity with the vulnerable, is to become vulnerable. And that's what we have seen this week in Afghanistan. Our, our failure to stand with the vulnerable to the point of our vulnerability. There is no solidarity without risk, period. There is no solidarity without risk. And we should be truly, when we make a pledge, when we make a promise, when we tell the vulnerable we will be there with them, we should be with, there with them till the job is done. 
Okay, until next time, I hope I'm feeling better. It's uh, day 22 of COVID, and now the pneumonia swept in. Yay. I hope I'm feeling better. Until next time, it's the Jason Jones Show. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Mudhouse Media.